Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right, welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. This is Mike, Dr. Johnson, how are you? Doing well, Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. Back in Texas for the weekend. It's nice to be back. Definitely more humid than, than Denver, but uh, it's good. I uh, get to see some old friends and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so today we're going back to our roots a little bit to discuss really what neurosurgery is and how it works. Um, you know, I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight with all the really cool stuff that we talk about, uh, really what it is and who should consider it. And, you know, maybe uh, you, you haven't considered yourself a neurosurgeon, but uh, maybe after this episode that you'll, you'll uh, consider yourself uh, potentially someone that might be interested in it. So um, no guests today. So we're going to be picking Dr. Johnson's brain mostly and uh, getting his expertise on uh, who might be, be want to be a neurosurgeon and, and really what neurosurgeons do in the United States. So to start, Dr. Johnson, what is neurosurgery? What do you do um, kind of on a day-to-day basis? And, and what does a neurosurgeon do more generally on a day-to-day basis? That was a, that's a good question. We skip right over that quite often. So neurosurgeons have a, you know, a bit of a broad definition of what they do. I mean, in, in, in sort of specifics, uh, we deal in surgical disorders, the brain, spine, and peripheral nerves, and their supporting structures, including the bones and blood vessels that surround them and house them. Uh, that said, we also participate in a fair amount of non-operative management and not everything we do is surgery. Um, you know, triaging of patients that may or may not need operations, um, managing people after surgery as they, you know, grow, uh, you know, may need things changed over time, uh, depending on what kind of procedures they've had in the past, um, thinking, you know, battery changes for implants and things like that. Um, and, and so there's a fair amount of non-operative management from that sense, but also we, we manage patients in the hospital and even neurocritical care, as we've talked about in this podcast before, is not directly operative, but it's management of critically ill patients with neurological disorders. So um, all that is kind of under the umbrella of neurosurgery in, in many ways. So it's not a pure definition of like surgery, no surgery, uh, but, but certainly clinical management patients that have surgical diseases really in the neurological system plus neurocritical care. So that's in general what it, what it refers to. um, And I'm sure there's many other nuances that may or may not be directly surgical that I've missed, but that's, that's pretty much it. Right. So for you, you worked at a a large academic center. What do academic neurosurgeons, what does their practice generally look like? Yeah. So I think academic neurosurgeons are very similar to every other neurosurgeon with the exception that they have a slightly different component to their mission, which is they do neurosurgery. Um, they take care of patients, um, you know, in the clinic and in the hospital. But in addition to that, they have secondary missions, um, which such as, you know, training residents. So teaching, 
Um, they have oftentimes, um, you know, either implicit or explicit time to do research. Um, you know, sometimes people have labs with up to 50% of their time spent doing direct research and other times it's more like clinical research fitted in when you can, you know, trying to advance the field's knowledge through, um, advancements in patient's care. It can also be device development, uh, testing of new devices, things like that. So that's not exclusive to academics, but certainly it's very common in academics. So those are the two nuances compared to just your everyday neurosurgeon. And then oftentimes there's administrative, you know, missions as well, like, uh, which, which is also quite common in, in non-academic neurosurgery. And do a majority of neurosurgeons just anecdotally, and I'm sure I've, I tried to find some data on this, but I've heard that about three fourths of neurosurgeons work in community practice versus academia. Is that, does that kind of track with your understanding of the breakdown? I think that's about right. It's probably about 25, 30%. Uh, I don't have those data, you know, that I've seen yeah. recently, but that yeah, sounds about true. right. Yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, and there's a lot of variations of quote unquote academics as you probably heard the term private-demic. So it's oftentimes you work in a hospital right. affiliated with an academic center and you still train residents that rotate there and you still have some of the other missions under your, you know, under your umbrella, but it's a bit more of a private-ish model that compared to, you know, the, some of the people that are in the, the main academic center. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that typically neurosurgeons working, you know, clinical practice research, and then some administrative in the research side, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but how does that shake out? Is that, are there particular pathways to making that happen? Um, how does that fit into a neurosurgeon's busy schedule? I know a lot of folks who are interested in neurosurgery are interested in research and it's almost a prerequisite. So I'm curious how that fits into your, your life and, and maybe more generally. Yeah, it's a good question. So there's essentially it can be done any kind of different variation of ways. <laughs> so, uh, you know, many people, as we talked about on the podcast before, uh, have PhDs. They are, you know, laser focused on answering question, a research question, um, in addition to their clinical, you know, pursuits. Some people aren't PhDs and um, you know, spend two years in a, in a lab and get the same bug to do something in a lab or something you know, scientific alongside uh, and ideally complementary to their operative or clinical interest in neurosurgery. And then there are the, you know, there's people that do clinical research, and that's a very broad category. And oftentimes people that do basic research also do some clinical research, but that can be many different things. It can be participation in clinical trials. So being a site PI for a multi-center trial, for instance, it can be case series of, you know, things that you've observed as a clinician that you think people should know about and, and writing that up and usually in concert with students or residents, it can be you know, designing new devices and working in a engineer engineering lab to make that happen and then transitioning that to patients. Um, and then all these things are the, the goal of through your career is to take whatever research, let's say you're a PhD or you're doing some sort of device innovation or software innovation. The idea is typically to transition that to patients. So then you kind of take your basic science or your basic work and try to translate it, translational research into the clinical setting, which can be small, you know, phase one trials for, in, you know, for devices, it's like, you know, safety trials and then, and then on to efficacy and safety trials that are larger and larger. 
And, and so a lot of people work on that pathway. And, but then there are a lot of people that are just take their large series of cases and write about them. And um, that's another very important aspect of, of this. Um, it's just to glean truths from clinical care um, that would help that you write about and other people read, and that would help other, other surgeons, uh, you know, hone their practice. Great. So, so far we've talked about how a lot of neurosurgeons, they work in community, others work in academia, everyone goes through academics to train. And so that might be where the misconception is because almost all neurosurgery programs, because 116 of them, they all are typically associated with big academic centers and often in urban or suburban areas. How might, and this is, we talked about this being a, a podcast by itself, but how might rural practice and urban practice differ? I know some folks do locum work or, you know, they do some traveling to, to work in rural areas where there might be a, a great, a great need for neurosurgery coverage. Um, how might that, how might that change? Well, the good news is the pathologies are the same, no matter where you are. So if you're trained to do neurosurgery, you, you can take care of patients in either setting. Fine. So I think the practice difference is, is one of support and the ability to have expertise in uh, rare diseases. So, so if you're in a community or more rural setting, the issue will be if something complex comes in, does the hospital that you work at have the infrastructure to take care of a extremely sick subretinal hemorrhage patient that needs daily TCDs and needs neurointerventional capabilities that needs, um, you know, rehab post-care, or not. And so very commonly those types of patients or patient similar types of concept patients are taking or moved to a higher level of care setting uh, if they come in for, for the patient's benefit to have the expertise they need to make, you know, to maximize their outcomes. So that leaves the more rural practice typically, and it's center to center dependent. Some places are in rural areas that are like a regional hub for complex things such as stroke. But in, in general, the smaller the hospital really uh, is, the, is the limiting step here that you work at or you're centered at, um, the less acute things you can take care of. So you're probably not a level one trauma center. You're probably not a comprehensive stroke center that takes care of, you know, big traumas, big strokes, et cetera. So you typically do less acute things like, you know, brain tumors that need an overnight stay in the, in the ICU, you know, spinal procedures that are unlikely to end up needing complex ICU care, et cetera. So we'll talk a little bit more about what the kind of patient is that a neurosurgeon takes care of here in a second. But before we do that, we have gotten bits and pieces of, of what it really takes to get there. So for, let's just say there's a, a first year college student or even a high school student who's interested in neurosurgery or interested in the brain. What are, what is the pathway to neurosurgery um, in progressing through their education? Uh, and then we'll, after that, that can play context to what are the other specialties that might be related to taking care of the brain or surgery or that sort of thing that can, we can maybe compare and contrast what that may look like for someone who's interested in this space. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of different pathways, uh, you know, as we talked about, but sort of the common theme to it is that in the United States, at least everyone goes through high school you know, training through the regular pathway through 12 grades of, of school. Um, graduates typically, and there are some exceptions to this, typically go to undergraduate training for four years. 
to get some sort of undergraduate degree. The most common of those undergraduate degrees that goes into medicine are science and biology and, you know, scientific uh, or engineering degrees, some sort of science, but you can do English, just about anything else. If you show the proclivity for the science as well, Uh, once you're done with that four years, you, you know, I don't remember exactly when I did it, maybe it's the third or fourth year of, I guess, third year of undergrad, you take the MCAT, which is the sort of entry score to get into medical school. And that in sort of synthesis, along with letters of recommendation, your grades, et cetera, are sent to medical schools for you to get a medical school uh, spot. So once you're in medical school, then you jump through several years and then you have to take your USLME step one, it's called, which will soon be going away, which is a sort of like the basic science E aspects of the teachings in medical school, what you're tested on. And then the clinical skills exam later which is more of the taking care of patients type questions, applied knowledge, so to speak, in the clinical setting. And then you need to apply to residency. So uh, prior to applying to residency, at least in neurosurgery, you typically do home rotations on a neurosurgical service. If you're at a medical school that has a neurosurgery residency, you do it there. If not, you have to kind of adopt another program to be your home program and do one there. And in other years, people do two, sometimes three, and even more away rotations and other programs to gain exposure to them, spend time on them uh, and those services, getting to know everyone and making sure you're kind of up to speed on doing this for the rest of your life. And then from those experiences, you get letters of recommendation and then ultimately apply to match. And we've had entire podcasts on that process, et cetera. Um, so, so you have to prove that your step scores are good. Your grades are good. You have good at clinical acumen, you're likable, you have good letters of recommendation, and then there's a match process to match a neurosurgery program. So that's all the steps in the kind of the typical pathway. And then once you get into residency, seven years of residency, my understanding there are different stages to that and there are requirements by the American Board of Neurological Surgeons about what kind of competencies that you need to meet, certain case numbers, that sort of thing, and then get into fellowship and beyond, correct? Right, exactly. So residency kind of broadly has three different stages. Uh, One is your junior residency, which is year one through three in most programs. And then year four and five, which are kind of either a research or elective in many programs. Uh, And this is widely variable, grant you, Uh, but this is in general. And then your senior years, which is generally operative focused years where you do oversee junior residents at this point. So you're kind of one level up on the patient care, but you're not running around and seeing every consult and writing every note yourself. You're more focused on spending time in the operating room, coordinating the operating room with the attendings and and doing the procedures. And and then of course, checking on the patients for aftercare. So essentially learning the kind of higher level aspects of neurosurgery. You do take a written board exam uh, for neurosurgery sometime during your residency. Um, Most people do it in their late junior residency or, or, or in their middle years. You need to pass that to graduate. And then there is a written board exam um, taken within the first five years after you graduate from residency, which includes entering your own cases, imaging, histories and physicals, and having uh, people critically analyze those, as well as sitting for sort of like mock cases that you're graded on your responses to how you would manage that patient. Um, Those are your oral boards. Yeah, oral boards. So that's kind of like step two, the the oral boards. And then once you pass your oral boards, then you're you know, you're granted, um, that you're a diplomat. So you're, you're a full neurosurgeon. Great. And then there are obviously the levels to faculty 
appointments. And yeah. So if you were to say academics, yeah, then there's the yeah. levels of faculty. And so, yeah, so the traditional levels of faculty in U.S. academic neurosurgery are assistant professor, which is if you, as soon as you're hired out of residency or, you're, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever, you're assistant professor. And each place's promotion timeline and criteria are different. And then you transition eventually, you look to be promoted, you know, via having publications, et cetera, and certain accomplishments that are, like I said, determined by each institution uh, and can become promoted to associate and the same process again for full professor. And um, those are the three general levels. And then there's like tenure track, non-tenure track, which is a whole nother discussion and varies institution to institution, what that means and what eligibility criteria are necessary to be in tenure versus non-tenure. Right. Uh, I'm, well, there's that kind of prompted a question that I'll ask here in a second, but in parallel to all of that, so kind of the generic pathway, there are <clears throat> specialty pathways, you know, in terms of things that you might be particularly interested in, or there's a specific need or a research focus, that sort of thing. So my understanding is that there are really, you know, kind of six or seven, depending on how you want to divvy them up, subspecialties within neurosurgery. So spine, cerebro and endovascular, which is your specialty, peripheral nerve, neuro-oncology, pediatrics, neurotrauma, and then functional and stereotactic. You could make the case neurotrauma and neurocritical care is kind of in the same, you know, uh, wheelhouse. Is there anything I'm missing? And are there, is there any part of that that you'd want to expand on? Yeah. So did you say functional? I may have missed it. Functional stereotactic. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, so the interesting thing about these subspecialties is that they are, um, with these, a couple of exceptions which we can touch on, all neurosurgeons can do all of these things. So um, although you may be a cerebrovascular neurosurgeon, um, I can also do, in theory, spine, neuro-oncology, <laughs> radio surgery, you know, functional procedures, DVSs, if I feel you know comfortable doing so, peripheral nerve surgery, critical care. So that's all like under your purview of being a you know, board-certified trained neurosurgeon. There's a couple of exceptions. One is that to do full-time pediatric neurosurgery on kind of like non just emergency shunts that come in, you need to fix to save someone's life, but like, you know, full-time pediatric neurosurgery. And in this, there's a lot of nuances to this, which I don't even fully understand as well, but you have to do a um, specific fellowship in pediatric neurosurgery and they have their own board exam as well. And then also um, you can clip an aneurysm as a neurosurgeon, but if you want to do intervent, you know, just an average neurosurgeon that trains from program to do that. But if you want to do interventional procedures, you have to do a special fellowship for that as well for most, for most, um, you know, hospitals to acknowledge that training. And yeah, I can direct you to the direct listeners to the episode, Dr. Arthur, and mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Dornbos and, and Dr. Lazaro. When we talked about that. And then we plan to have uh, someone come on and talk about pediatrics. Cause I know that's a kind of its own um, thing as well. They have their fellowships right. match as well. So yeah, Despite all that, I think that that might be a misconception among students and even young, potentially even young residents, where I think everyone sees that someone is specialized, at least in academia, and might have a false perception that that's like all they do or that that's, you know, how traditional practices. But my understanding is that at least majority of neurosurgeons, a lot of what they do is spine. Is that, is that fair to say? Agree. So spine is bread and butter neurosurgery. There's no question about it. I mean, the traditional number has been, oh, 70% of neurosurgery is spine. However, there's these large um, databases that are accumulating that you know, have some data to suggest it's not quite that weighted to spine, like more like 60-40. But it could just be that the people entering this information are academic centers that are <laughs> that are more cranial focused. Who, who knows? 
I'm sure someone could write about this from a, you know, national inpatient survey, uh, you know, perspective or something like that. If, if someone were so inclined. Study idea. Go for it guys. Yeah. But that's the traditional number. 70% is fine. So that's bread and butter neurosurgery, but people that go into a quote unquote private practice or are hospital employed that aren't affiliated with academic centers are expected to be able to take out brain tumors and um, standard brain tumors and all these kind of a, like a spattering of everything that they've seen in their training. And the reason why you mentioned that, um, you know, training programs are sort of clustered in, in urban centers or high, high uh, large medical centers is because to meet, as you said, there are some case requirements that you have to have to graduate that are, that are adjudicated by a governing body in, within neurosurgery. And, and you need to have a certain volume and diversity of cases to meet those. And that is typically only achievable in like large volume centers for training resident purposes. Right. No, it's good. Good explanation there. So, so I think that gives a good idea of kind of what, at least broadly, what a, a neurosurgeon would do. And obviously there's a ton of nuance like you referred to earlier. Now with that in mind, there are a number of other specialties that take care of the nervous system that take care of you in surgical patients. You know, some of the things that some of the ones that come to mind that I've, you know, critically acclaimed neurology, orthopedic surgery, um, you can go pathology and specialize in neuropathology, psychiatry, interventional radiology, diagnostic radiology, radiation oncology, ear, nose, and throat. There are obviously a lot of similarities and the motivations, anyone, any one particular person's motivations is going to be different. But for you, just, you know, personally speaking, what is your motivation? What was your motivation to get into neurosurgery? And if you look at those other specialties, what's, what are the certain things that when you were thinking introspectively drove you to neurosurgery versus another specialty that might have some similarities? Yeah, this is a very good question particularly from the perspective of someone who hasn't made that choice yet. Uh, you know, we don't think about it anymore. Once you're, once you're in the program, you, uh, that's a long, long gone decision. No going back. Yeah. So I can only tell you my kind of my perspective. So for, for me, I, I went through medical school, eyes wide open, I did not have any particular predisposed interest in neurosurgery. I went through the first two years in our school at the time was just didactics. And then the third year you started to do rotations and I just, sort of used my compass as being what I was interested in as to what, what I followed. And um, I definitely found out that I was not at all excited about outpatient medicine, generally speaking, whether it be family medicine or I just wasn't that interested in clinic um, as like a full-time profession. I like the excitement of more acute things. And then from an inpatient perspective, I had experiences on medicine and et cetera and and just didn't find that to be particularly rewarding. I mean, not bad, but just not particularly rewarding. And then surgery, however, seemed to fit in a couple different ways. One, there's like much, much more acuity, or like a ruptured app, app, appendix, and you can kind of like swoop in and save the day. And then the patient feels better and is, you know, you know, appreciably their life is improved for your, for your work. But I wasn't a huge fan of, I don't know how to say this best, but the bowels. So, uh, you know, no. so I didn't really want to do general surgery, although that was really my only surgical exposure as a medical student. Um, but I remembered having, as, as like a teenager, having read books about neurosurgery and the nervous system and thought that was really interesting. And they gave us the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks as a third year, I think late in my third year, 
you know, opt out of a couple of weeks of neurology and, and do neurosurgery instead, which was, you know, that was the, that was the trick. That's one of the exposure I needed. So right. I, I saw neurosurgery and like the brain and brain tumors and like spinal tumors and compression and removing it. And the patient was stronger in their legs. And a few weeks later was walking and thought it was just magnificent. You know, I really did. And granted, I didn't get to go see like ENT, uh, you know, and all these other sort of surgical subspecialties, which I'm sure are amazing. So I just kind of a bit was a bias of my exposure, but my exposure was biased by my interest that I had remembered since I was younger. Um, so I followed uh, neurosurgery from that per- from that point forward. I I knew like kind of neurology was uh, interesting too, but was kind of on that kind of like full time clinicy pathway or you know non procedural pathway, which wasn't really that interesting to me. And never really considered pathology <laughs> or or anything. Uh, I did like interventional radi- uh, I did like radiology. I thought it was quite fascinating, but but just didn't seem that exciting to read films. Um, and I didn't really, I guess, really get much exposure to interventional radiology. I must say, just the way the way it all shuffled, you know, all fell out. So that was my path. So I followed my interests and um, thought neurosurgery was a great match for me. I mean, I think the other thing I was exposed to from a surgical subspecialty was plastic surgery, which I thought was also great. I liked a lot, but at the time there was only like one or two in the country, direct plastic surgery residencies. And you had to go through general surgery, which made me worry that I would like want to quit general surgery for the aforementioned reasons. You know, <laughs> right. Plastics. Yeah. So I, that highlights, I think probably great. Thanks for sharing your uh, personal experience. I, I've heard it kind of two ways. So, a lot of people have been or suggest, do you like surgery or not? And then go from there. In neurosurgery, I've, I've heard it not just that way, but also are you just fascinated with the brain and nervous system or not? And then go from there. Uh, and at least that's my, that was my pathway is just being fascinated with the brain and the nervous system, wanting to study it for the rest of my life. And then realizing the best way to preserve who people are at the most fundamental level is through procedures and and getting to work with your hands and, and that yeah. sort of thing. My, so, my experience was actually, I, during my didactic time, I, that we had exposure to neurology from the didactic right. side and I actually did not like it. I was one of the, really? the least, and even in anatomy, neuroanatomy, I liked the, I thought it was interesting, but like learning the thou, it just wasn't as like, you know, hands-on. It was like more conceptual. Right. So I right. was like, so, so about neuroanatomy, but the, the, the connection of the clinical applications of neurosurgery with all of those things were, was like a real home run, you know? Right. Um, yeah. When you, right. particularly when you can swoop in and keep someone from, you know, becoming exactly. paraplegic or, you know, they have this huge tumor and they can't walk and they're, you know, losing their personality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just such a big difference. Yeah. Right. And so I think it highlights another thing is about, you know, everyone's pathway is a little bit different. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my, understanding and when i started to really decide this is what i wanted to do was i thought that everyone who wanted to be a neurosurgeon wanted to do it since they were five years old and realized pretty quickly that's not necessarily the case so you know and as long as you're willing to put in the work that's required no matter when you're interested in that which might delay things that's really kind of the only factor that at least in my wisdom from other people much wiser than i am have been have uh, bestowed upon me so with that in mind who should be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> who should want to be a neurosurgeon? Who should consider it? Obviously, and maybe the way to frame it is regardless of how competitive it is, regardless of how long the training is, those things obviously matter. But at its base, who, who should be thinking about wanting to do this for their for their life? And who, who might just find that they love it? I think it's a multi-step question. I'm not sure you can know 
until you are like about that period of time where you can actually go and expose yourself to different aspects of medicine and nurse surgery and compare them like, like in front of you, like, like a hand of cards. <laughs> right. So I think, I think that's really the telltale thing is when you, when you've like bounced around OBGYN and surgery and pathology and, uh, you know, medicine, inpatient, outpatient, family medicine, pediatrics, um, and, you know, maybe one or two other surgical specialties. And then you just like examine these things in front of you and, and you kind of know, uh, in my mind, that's, that's when you really, know. right. So other than that, it's a, it's a bit speculative. I, I think you can, I think you can really get an idea that you like it by just shadowing at an earlier age, you know, knowing people that are in neurosurgery. Um, so I think, I think you can get the idea earlier and follow that interest. But I do think when you really have to make that decision is when you have all the real information in front of you and, and you kind of like that, that's when you kind of know for sure who should go into neurosurgery is, you know, people that like to make a difference, people that love to, to kind of live and work at the same time, you know, they get a lot of the re the reward of um, life is related to how much they help people. Um, it's similar to lots of other types of medicine. You know, it's like a calling. It's not just a job. And you really enjoy pursuing that calling and making big differences in people's lives and, you know, having people thank you and then having to take the pain of people not doing well and, you know, uh, you know, and, and kind of carry some of those burdens, but, but also a lot of like really high highs and some low, <laughs> some low lows sometimes, you know, um, but all in all, everybody knows that you're trying to do the best thing for patients and help people. And it just doesn't always, you're not able to. So I think people that really want to make a big difference, like a big difference, like they, they like the acute things. They like to, to jump in when things are, when things are really tough and, and, and save the day, so to speak, or at least try to make a difference in that way. It really predisposes itself to those people in general. That said, there are people that are really interested in changing the world through research. There's people that want to do, put a DBS electrode in a cool new place and solve it, you know, you know, potentially create a new treatment for a new disease in every which way you can slice it, that you can make a difference even beyond that, you know, direct surgical um, sort of swoop in and make a difference in, in someone's life from a clinical perspective. So I think it's like an amazing, diverse specialty with like you talked about all the different things or the subspecialties that you can focus on. Like there's a huge difference between peripheral neurosurgery and cerebrovascular surgery <laughs> and functional neurosurgery and tumors, like not different, not, not, not completely different, but because they're all neurosurgery, but, but not, not super similar in, in a lot of ways. And so there's lots of different ways you can slice and dice, you know, your lifestyle, where you work and what setting you work, throwing in research and education in there or not. So there's lots of different ways you can have like a tremendous career in neurosurgery. So I'm not saying there's only one way to it, but I think the fundamental thing is you really have to like, you know, surgery and, um, and kind of the marriage of surgery and the nervous system, which sounds obvious, but it's true. Yeah. And those can come kind of like convergent evolution. They kind of come run parallel. And then when you find out that they come together, yeah. um, hopefully it might be the, the nidus for that might be this podcast for some folks. Uh, and I think this is all, and that was kind of the reason I thought this was good to do just because I've had enough questions from younger students. And I think also there's misperceptions about it from even family members or loved ones of people who are trying to do this, which maybe this could be a way to elucidate some of what actually neurosurgeons do as well. And I, yeah, I think what you, everything you just said was totally right. Paul Kalanafi, he's the author of When Breath Becomes Error. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend anyone read that. It's uh, definitely a tearjerker, but it's really profound. I think he sums it up. He, he says that the ethos of neurosurgery of excellence in all things maintains that excellence in neurosurgery is not enough. And I think that at least for me, that was always something that I held on to 
because it seems to attract a certain person. And, and it's really e- tr- easy to try to rationalize it, but it kind of is just like a, a feeling, like a gut feeling that this is what you're supposed to do. And it, it's really hard to, <laughs> to put in language. Um, so sorry for putting you on the spot like that. Oh, no, no, it's okay. I mean, I've heard people <laughs> uh, say like, you should try everything else. And only if you can't see yourself doing anything else, should you pursue right. neurosurgery? I mean, I think oftentimes I say you really have to love it. Like you have to see it, yeah. feel it, live it and love it you know, because you really have to, it's a long road, you know, you have to right. have that, that just energy for it to persevere and, and be happy. Um, right. Because it what's is tough. Is that long? Yeah. Tough. Cause yeah. really tough road. And, and what's also tough is that medical school is still four years, you know, it was four years, a hundred years ago. So the amount of what we have to know is obviously so much more than that. Um, so you have to figure out what you want to do in such a short amount of time. And you only have so many electives you can do and so much time to spend learning about these things. And so hopefully for all of those listeners out there who maybe it's to the nervous system or surgery or just, or just kind of happenstance across this episode, uh, maybe we'll consider it and just go shadow or uh, try to do a, a week of elective on their neurology rotation or something like that. Cause I think that it could be a life-changing move for you. Dr. Johnson, is there anything else that you think, um, obviously we need to expand on some special subspecialties and future episodes and, you know, maybe, uh, take a little bit deeper into what community resected practice looks like, but is there anything else that you think listeners should take home with them before we, hit, before we sign off? No, I mean, I think the only thing I would add in to all this discussion was like, depending on what stage you're at as a listener, this is all an abstract idea until you've seen it in person. So, you know, if you're an undergrad or even high school, it's not always possible, but look at local neurosurgeons, but particularly academic centers that are, usually have some pathways to shadow and that's maybe tricky still with COVID lingering around. Um, but in general, it's good advice to try and get some sort of shadowing opportunity, whether it's a local neurosurgeon through connections, you know, or local hospitals or local academic departments. So we may be able to have some sort of program where you can shadow doctors and see if you can see if you can get into see what neurosurgeons do. You know, like we said, the like the real critical pieces in medical school, but even early in medical school, when you're doing didactics, you know, make friends with the, if the neurosurgery residents or attendings in your training program, if there's one at your school, very important uh, to get to know them as early as possible. If you're interested potentially in this field. And then, like we said, that kind of real, like, what do they, what do they say? Like, uh, oh man, I'm losing it now. Something or cut bait, <laughs> Fisher cut bait, <laughs> the Fisher cut bait moment. Yeah. Yeah. Is when you're when you're in your third year and you have to make that decision which way you're going to go with your residency and, and at that point you really want to have done a clinical rotation where you work with the residents and you take call with the residents and then make that kind of pathway decision whether you're going into neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery or whatever um, and then at that point then you're going to do more clinical rotations in fourth year etc. Um, but I would I think it's if if at all possible to have a, some sort of formal rotation as a third year in your medical school. And it's not always possible, believe it or not. Um, that would be ideal. If not, then I think you just have to spend, you know, weekends or weeks of vacation informally shadowing, um, the nurse surgery service as a, you know, as a third year. Yeah. And I, I recommend to young, especially younger students, we talked about this on an undergraduate episode as well. And so I recommend folks go listen to that. That's where they're at in their stage, but I mean, go shadow other specialties and see if this is, because if you can see yourself some, doing something else and you are just as happy, like you should think about that critically. And that could be, uh, I mean, that's just as impactful. Obviously, you can make an impact in oh, yeah. lots People, of different ways. Oh, yeah. medicine doctor, you know, someone comes in a cardiac right. arrest. And, I mean, you make a huge difference in their life, too. It's that's who calls you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not exclusive to right. neurosurgery for sure. I mean, it's one of the, it's right. one of the big, big uh, you know 
things that all doctors have to be ready to do is save someone's life. There's no question. And on the flip side, don't write yourself off. You know, obviously there's a lot of steps that you have to take, but don't write yourself off for you're even able to take, take those steps, you know? Uh, so if you might be interested, just see if you love it and, and go from there. Um, I think we're oftentimes our worst enemies. So uh, if you can try to get yourself out of the way and let other things get in your way, <laughs> and that, I think that's a big, that's a big uh, challenge to overcome, but could be really great. It's a great field of medicine. And, and I think it's so special. Yeah. It's amazing to, as well. You know, I remember yeah. as a medical student, we had a, like a 40 year old going to torsades de puentes or whatever. And I remember the, the medical resident pulled out the calcium or whatever. And I was like, and I was just like floored. This lady like wakes up and, uh, right. you know, yeah. no doubt about it and i was like how did you know calcium you know he's only a year or two ahead of me i was like my god right uh, right and uh he looked at the the strip and he was like it's torsades uh, i gotta read about this i still remember to this day yeah. you know yeah. so <laughs> yeah those, a lot of a lot of, a lot of things can be you know a great saves and huge impacts in multiple fields and and i think it's just about a, about a fit with your personality and your interests um and i think to really you know know that fit you have to you have to experience it firsthand as much as you can. I think that's the takeaway. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. This was, uh, I think this is me, uh, a great uh, harken back to the basics. So awesome. Thanks, Michael, and uh, enjoy your vacation. All right. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day and we look forward to next time.